welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. My podcast partner, Emily Jane Fox, is not with us this week, and there's a very good reason for that. She is getting married this weekend, so we wish her a beautiful wedding. Mazel tov, Emily. This is by far the best news of the week. Uh, Today, we've got a very special guest with us, Robert Costa, chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News, co-author of the book Peril with the legendary Bob Woodward. You may recall that book covers the transition from the Trump White House to the Biden White House and the chaos of January 6th. This week, the same duo broke a huge story about the discoveries, about new discoveries in the House investigation looking into what happened that day or what didn't happen and what we do and don't know about it. And so he's here to help us understand it today. Bob, Robert, (laughs) welcome to Inside the Hive. You know, Woodward and I, since we're both named Bob, we'll call each other Costa and Woodward whenever we're working because it just gets confusing with each other. But it's great to be with you, Joe. Yeah, Costa and Woodward. If it doesn't work out with the reporting thing, you could be like a law firm. That's right. You know, know, Woodward's father was a lawyer in Illinois, so... That, that makes sense. My Both my parents are attorneys. I think being a journalist is kind of trying to escape going to law school. That's so funny you say that because I had a mentor who tried to get me to go to law school and I just was like, I don't know about that. And uh, I need it to be a little more fun and a little easier. And, and uh, I'm not so sure many law firms have the opportunity to hang out with Wenner and Rolling Stone and do all that. That's just not kind of the legal world from what I can tell. No, it's not. You'd, you'd be like the lawyer who would be suing the reporter uh, for, for the things that you wrote. So let's get into it. This week, you guys reported uh, that the select committee to investigate the attacks, the January 6th committee, is looking into whether there were call logs or whether there were communications between Donald Trump and other people on the day that the Capitol riots occurred. And what we are finding what you have reported is that there's this seven hour gap in the call logs that both during, before, and after the Capitol riots. So we don't know exactly what he was doing. Everybody's wondering. And on that day, we wondered, where is the president? Where is the president? And now we know definitively in a very kind of um, almost an echo of things we saw in the Nixon White House, a gap, right? So tell us why that gap's important. Why is this such important news? It's important because it does have kind of an overlap with the Watergate story in the sense that Rosemary Woods, Nixon's assistant at the time, there was an 18 and a half minute gap in the Nixon tapes that just never came to public light. And now we have far more than an 18 and a half minute gap. Uh, We have seven hours and 37 minutes. And here's the reason this really matters. It is a crime to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. That has been the focus of the January 6th committee. If there's any possible crime Donald Trump committed in their view, based on our reporting, it's the disruption of power. Could he also be complicit in a possible criminal conspiracy to defraud the United States? Some members of the committee believe that privately. Some have stated it publicly. A judge in California has said as much. But in terms of the focus of the investigation, the crime Chairman Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney appear to be focusing on the possible crime by Trump is obstructing a process of government. And to understand if Trump obstructed government or not in the peaceful transfer of power with deliberate criminal intent, you need to have a tracking of what he was doing, his movements, his phone calls on the day of January 6th. And 
Woodward and I found things that were really new information when we were able to confirm and secure these 11 documents that detail some of Trump's day on January 6th. We see for the first time that he's talking in the morning to Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani right before he talks to Mike Pence for that final time on January 6th. But we don't have what he was doing in the Oval Office when he returns from the rally that day. And that's such a crucial period because that's when so much of the violence unfolded. That's right. And what you were talking about intent, this is something that comes up a lot. You know, the question that I get all the time and the question that I have, (laughs) frankly, is, uh, you know, what appears to have been a criminal intent to delegitimize the election Mm -hmm. and take over the government through other means. It has somehow not been able to uh, touch him legally. It's as if the law has its Swiss cheese. You know, you everybody sees what happened, and they can put the pieces together. But legally, you need to know Trump's state of mind, whether he knew that he had lost, and that he was going about finding a different way, an extra legal way to stay in office. Right? But they have to prove state of mind, and that's why these phone calls are also important because we don't know what he was doing to kind of pull levers and strings, and whether he was allowing this Capitol riot to go on on purpose, because he didn't stop it. That's exactly right. And the fascinating thing, Joe, about this story is even after Woodward and I spent 10, 11, 12 months looking into this every day for 12, 15 hours a day, and we published a book about it in September 2021, Peril, even now, after doing all that work, after publishing a literal book There's still so much we don't know about January 6th. And we discovered in our book, for example, the Eastman Memo, which many call a blueprint for a coup, which outlines how alternate electors should somehow be called to Washington. And the memo states that alternate electors were available. Of course, that was not the case on January 6th. But Eastman, this conservative lawyer, is pushing this argument. And then what we're realizing now is we also had Ginny Thomas, the spouse of a Supreme Court justice, sending text messages to the chief of staff. We also had Bannon more involved than previously understood, even though we knew he was at the Willard War Room on January 5th talking to Trump and Giuliani. And we're also seeing, yes, he talked to Senator Mike Lee on January 6th during this crucial period. Trump talked to House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. But who else was he talking to? And it gets to your excellent point. We need to understand his state of mind, whether there was any kind of criminal intent, knowing he lost the election, to still try to take the election to stay in power. And to do that, you really need to understand who he was talking to. Now, the January 6th committee, based on our reporting, has been able to piece together some of this, and we haven't really understood exactly what they have yet, because some of the people who are cooperating with the committee are providing call data records. But at the same time, that only provides a partial map And the most difficult thing for the committee, which we stated in our story for CBS and The Post, is that, okay, you understand he may have made some calls on the White House line to Mike Lee, to Kevin McCarthy, but suppose he was making calls on a personal phone, a disposable phone, a so-called burner phone, or using an AIDS phone. And it's evident that during the course of his presidency, Trump often used the phone of AIDS and others. And so- If he's in the dining room of the Oval Office or the Oval Office with the door closed and not using a government phone, it's, of course, very hard to track it and then ultimately land in the National Archives. And that's why when these documents came over, it was very vexing to the committee because they fought all the way to the Supreme Court to get Trump's phone records. And the Supreme Court on an eight to one ruling and order said, hand them over to the committee. But this is all the National Archives seems to have. 
That's right. And you asked, uh, you tweeted earlier um, this week, you know, sources were asking you, uh, you know, there should be a detailed log of the calls. Why doesn't the committee have it? If Trump's assistant took notes on the calls, where are the notes? And the committee, I think it was Bernie Thompson, have said there are other options they have outside of those logs. And one of these, one of them that I found tantalizing, I'll say, there might have been some other people in the room who heard conversations during that day. That's right. And uh, you know, we you talk about uh, Rosemary Woods. I mean, there's there's all these other people around whose names might not be bold-faced and understood by the public who were running around that White House and were in and out of Trump's office that day. Isn't that correct? That's exactly right. For example, we know uh, retired General Keith Kellogg was in and out of the Oval multiple times that day. Uh, we know Mark Meadows has provided some of his text messages to the committee before he stopped cooperating. Does the committee have Meadows' text from January 6th? It's not clear. Maybe they do. And there are other of these side figures, the Rosemary Wood types, Nick Luna, a name probably few people on this podcast know, or if you don't follow Trump, you would barely know the name, but he was Trump's personal aide during the final days of the presidency. And Nick Luna has gone in to the January 6th committee. We're not aware of how much he has shared, but he's gone in. And so the committee is certainly doing a wide ranging investigation. Uh, I've been tracking it extremely closely, and they're talking to people who really were on the inside with Trump. The challenge for the committee based in conversations with people close to it, is that there's still no John Dean who's just kind of opening the kimono in terms of sharing everything. They're getting some cooperation, but to someone who can really piece it together, the person they really want to talk to is Bannon, but he's fought that all the way in the in the courts to the point of being criminally indicted by the Department of Justice. But it's interesting how outside people like Giuliani and Bannon are almost more important, it seems at times, than inside personnel because Trump trusts the outside voices, goes to the people who can kind of do his bidding through media means, through other means. And the still question the committee is trying to piece together is, is there any kind of real connection between the violence and the Trump White House? We don't know that yet. We know the rally was, of course, connected to people at the White House, but it's a difficult picture to put together. And this committee is working at the same time Merrick Garland and the DOJ are doing their own. And, and, but the committee's frustrated because they, they, they voiced a few days ago complaints that the DOJ isn't doing enough to make indictments on certain people around Trump. Yeah. Well, that's a question I had for you. How would you describe the strategy of this committee? You know, and, and let me just remind uh, the podcast listeners, you know, this committee is made up of House members and Jamie Raskin and Adam Schiff, people you know, but also, you know, the two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger, who have obviously suffered politically for having been participating in this thing, which is in a whole other sub subplot. But, you know, they've been sort of leaking stuff week by week, keeping it in the news, pieces of the story. And, and, and I'm wondering, like, what do you think the purpose of that is? Well, I, I, with respect, Joe, I, I don't actually see it as leaking because – Believe me, we wish people were leaking. This is a very difficult story to report on. This is actually a very closed committee. There's frustration with our own reporting in terms of the committee's not – they want to do things on their terms at their time. And we're just doing our jobs as reporters, trying to piece together the story from many, many different sources and obtain documents as much as we can and and really build this out. There's some tension inside of the committee. This isn't a committee that's a monolith. It's a complicated story. When your your nose is up against the glass as a reporter, 
you realize that these are human beings inside of the committee that have different strategies. Some want to focus more on the conspiracy side of the Eastman memo and Trump and Bannon. Others want to focus more on Trump's actions on January 6th and whether he was obstructing the lawful process of Congress. Others are much more focused on the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the, the, the connection between the Trump rally at the ellipse on January 6th and the violence that followed uh, within minutes of that rally. And this is also something that's being done on a tight timeline. The committee members know if Republicans win the majority in the elections in November, this committee's gone. Kevin McCarthy, the House GOP leader, has signaled this committee's over. So it's interesting because they wanted to have hearings in a report earlier this year. There, there was talk of doing it in February and March. Of course, now that's long past. The reason that's passed is it's like everything in life, especially with investigations, you think things are going to follow a certain path, but then there's a twist and a turn. One twist was getting the records from the Supreme Court through the archives and then realizing they have an incomplete picture. Another twist is you think this is about the legislative branch, the executive branch, pressure on state governments, and then you realize, well, it kind of rubs up against the Supreme Court. That's a twist. And so they're trying to piece this all together. And these aren't superheroes. These are members of Congress who have full-time jobs, who are also trying to do a major investigation about democracy being taken to the brink in this country. It's quite an undertaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have subpoena power. You and I both didn't become lawyers, so we don't have subpoena power. They have subpoena power, so they're able to get, I think, quite a bit of cooperation to a point, but not enough. Well, I do know that when there are new pieces of information that come out in the press and they've come somehow out of their committee, that, you know, Liz Cheney will come out and kind of expand upon it or echo it. And everybody is trying to piece this together, right? There are, you know, ostensibly three bodies trying to piece this together. The press, this committee, and the Department of Justice, maybe, right? Because they're working on uh, various levels of this. We just don't know how high those levels go. Let me ask you this. Uh, Liz Cheney uh, was reported, you know, was a little ambivalent about, uh, for instance, bringing Jenny Thomas, wife of Clarence Thomas, uh, before the committee. Uh, and this suggested that there might, you know, the conflict that you're uh, alluded to there, or at least the tension. Is there anything you can tell us about that? It comes down to a debate over focus based on my reporting in the sense that Cheney's open to having Ginny Thomas be invited to appear. Benny Thompson, the chairman, has said the same. But when they're trying to build such a body of evidence on Trump, on Pence, on people inside the White House, is someone sending QAnon conspiracy theories to a chief of staff vital to the investigation? It might be. It's not for me to decide. Though it's interesting to me that Justice Thomas and Ginny Thomas, after repeated attempts by Woodward and I to contact them, have not said a word about anything here. Yeah. Anything they say (laughs) is going to become uh, fodder and uh, keep it in the news. Um, Let me ask you this. Um, I've followed this closely enough that I know that they're following, they have different investigative teams on the committee that are following different aspects of the story. I think they have five different teams. Correct. And, you know, one of the sort of lines of inquiry is the pressure on Mike Pence. And uh, I just noted today, I was looking through, you know, occasionally the committee will have to, um, file a lawsuit of some kind. And sometimes they will include inside the lawsuit pieces of interviews they've done. 
which is one way that we're all able to see some of this stuff. And Pence's lawyer, Greg Jacob, came before the committee, and there's some of his uh, interview made it into a lawsuit. And um, he was describing in the lawsuit some of the conversations he had with Trump's lawyer, John Eastman, uh, who some of you may know if you've read, been reading the news, Eastman was the one who was ostensibly drafting a kind of blueprint for, you know, rejecting the certification. Yeah, we, we found the, the memo. We're, we found, found the it. memo. That's Two right. Two pages, so, six points to overturn an election. That's right. And then he was making his case to Pence in the days leading up to January 6th, saying, here are some options for you sort of cover your ass legal arguments for ways that you could reject the certification and send, you know, at one point he's saying, why don't you send back, send back the electors to the states to be re- for review of some kind. And, and Greg Jacobs, the lawyer for uh, the vice president, Pence at the time was saying, well, listen, you know, this isn't going to work. This isn't make sense legally. This is going to go to the Supreme Court and lose 9-0. And if you look into the transcript with Greg Jacob, he says, um, he's, he's recounting this conversation. John Eastman replies to him, oh, we could get at least two Supreme Court justices on our side. And uh, Greg Jacobs says, like who? And he goes, Clarence Thomas. That was the mm-hmm. first name that came out of his mouth. And, uh, you know, I found that fascinating. And it's like things like that that this committee is trying to tie together, right? Like, what does this all this mean? You know, and this is how a lot of Watergate began, too. It was like a series of conjectures and conspiracies. And then reporters like you begin to tie it together. And this committee is trying to do something similar. That's right. And I think you're, you're raising a very good point about John Eastman. John Eastman was a clerk for Justice Thomas. He's brought in to the Trump inner circle in the final days. He is part of this crucial period between December 30th and January 6th, where it begins to have this focus on the congressional certification and that you need to have some kind of reason to go to the states. And the whole thing they wanted to do is have Pence postpone and block the certification so states could have time, red states, to send in alternate slates of electors or have special sessions to decertify Biden's win in those respective states. And Trump needed legal cover. And and one of the counterfactuals for history will always be, suppose Greg Jacob bought the John Eastman argument. And suppose Pence, who is definitely searching for legal advice in the final days. Suppose he goes, well, Greg Jacobs says do it and John Eastman says do it. So I have a legal, I have legal grounds to walk away from the lectern on the 6th and say, hey, we need more time. It would have almost certainly caused a constitutional crisis. Yeah. So Greg Jacob has been interviewed by the committee. Aides to Pence have also been interviewed by the committee. And not all of that has come out. Do you get any sense? And I've I've always been curious about this. You know, we talk about like, are they leaking any of this, or it's just hard to get? You know, we're getting dribs and drabs and bits and pieces of the information that they have behind the scenes. I had to wonder, watching Pence, kind of putting his political neck out in the last few months, kind of being contrary to Trump. Right? Uh, some people think he's building some sort of uh, platform for a twenty twenty four run, or you know, maybe that's not realistic, but. Obviously, the Pence camp is no longer in the Trump camp, right? And vice versa. So it, it made me wonder about the motivations of Pence's aides. They would be you know, inclined to tell the truth and to tell the committee what they knew. And I had to wonder, and I have wondered, do you think the committee has stuff already that is going to be you know, move the needle? Or if they had it, would they already have put it out? 
No, I would not say they've already put it out. This is a tight committee, believe me. I'm I'm trying every day to shake the tree. Uh, Here's what my assessment is of the Pence part of this. The Pence people are cooperating, and they wouldn't do so without Pence in some way giving them at least his tacit blessing to go tell the truth. The question is, how much do they know about everything? And what I mean by that is this. The one thing that really matters to me that is an unanswered question about January 6th is on January 3rd, Pence goes to the Senate parliamentarian, Sunday, January 3rd. She tells him you can't do any kind of mischief or troublemaking on the the, the 6th. And he says, okay, that's what the parliamentarian says. He meets with Greg Jacob and Mark Short, his lawyers and chief of staff, and says, on on the 4th, I'm going to go to Georgia for a rally, and I'm going to follow through and just kind of be an overseer of the process. When he comes back from Georgia on January 4th, Monday, Trump calls him into the Oval Office. It's not a planned meeting. John Eastman's there. Trump, John Eastman, pressure Pence in front of Greg Jacob and Mark Short and others and say, you have to follow the Eastman plan. Pence is kind of evasive and says, look, I'm still looking at this. I got to do my job, but let's have our lawyers meet tomorrow. Then on Tuesday, January 5th, you mentioned the conversation John Eastman had with Greg Jacob about what this would look like if it went to the Supreme Court. That conversation took place Tuesday, January 5th in the old executive office building, the Eisenhower building, between Jacob and Eastman on the 5th, the day before. On that same day, the most crucial meeting is when Trump, really in a crisis moment, realizing Pence is slipping away, his power is slipping away, he calls Pence into the Oval Office on the 5th, one-on-one. And what we don't know, we, we have second-hand knowledge, and we have it in peril about that conversation where Trump is just going into Pence, tearing into Pence. You got to do this, Mike. If you don't, I picked the wrong man four years ago. Don't be weak. You have yeah. to do this. If Pence would ever testify or speak publicly about that conversation, it would tell us so much because that, to me, is the ultimate moment of desperation for Trump as he tries to implement all of these different plans. Right. You know, it's funny you say that because one thing I've always speculated about was Pence going into that meeting. He knows that this is the meeting. This is it. This is the 11th hour, right? How could he not have taped that interview? You know, I know that's like, maybe it's not legal. Maybe it wouldn't have been the right thing to do, but like, it's just a historical moment. You just, but you're right. He, if he oh, could it's, testify. The, it's the moment. It's the moment. It's the moment. And if he did testify and he does have something to say about it, about the details of that, and those details are what we think they could very well be, but that's a risk for him. And this this comes down to it like, okay, let's just say all the facts came out. Well, the committee, as you know, and as some of our listeners are going to know, uh, doesn't have the authority to prosecute. They can only create a report. And, and make a referral suggest. if they want, right. They can make a referral, right? It really comes down to the will, the will of Merrick Garland in the, in the Department of Justice to execute on, on whatever the facts may turn out to be. And now I say that with the caveat that we don't know that they aren't already pursuing parallel lines, right? Because there is no real relationship between the DOJ and the, and the House Committee, right? No, not, not, not that I can tell. And that actually frustrates the committee. One quick thing about when Pence leaves the Oval Office on January 5th, it's a small detail in our reporting, but it just sticks with me. A longtime aide of named Tom Rose of Pence notices Pence leaving and says Pence looked white as a ghost, like he had just been in the hospital or something and seen something terrible. 
and that was recalled and circulated around the Pence inner circle about just how Pence looked leaving the Oval Office truly shaken. And he goes into his office in the West Wing after leaving the Oval and says something to the effect of, gosh, I just, I gave it all. I gave it all. And no one really knows what exactly he was saying, what he meant by that. Uh, but just ruptured uh, as a person, someone who's very stoic and contained. And, and that meeting, it just, it lingers on as what happened? Because Trump, think about it, that night after Pence leaves, what does Trump do? This is public information. Trump issues a strange statement through his campaign saying, Mike Pence agrees with everything I believe on the vice president's role on January 6th. And Pence's people have to call the Willard War Room and say, what the heck is going on? You can't issue a statement that's a lie stating the vice president's view. I mean, this this was the hectic night. This is when then Trump calls Bannon and Giuliani over at the Willard after Pence leaves. And they say, how did it go with Pence? How did it go with Pence? And Trump says he was arrogant. He was arrogant. And Giuliani and Bannon look at each other based on our report and they go, oh boy, this is slipping away from us. I have to wonder if the conversation, you know, we, we see it as like conversations between John Eastman and Craig Jacob, two lawyers, right? But I have to wonder if Trump and Pence had been have, in an ongoing dialogue about all of this, right? Personally, man to man. I mean, they were speaking on some sort of semi-frequent occasion, right? No doubt about it. I mean, Pence prided himself publicly at always saying, this morning, I just spoke to President Trump. We talked, had this conversation. He spoke to Trump all the time. Yeah. Um, well, well, his testimony would be uh, crucial. But like I say, let's let's just try to get into Pence's mind for a minute. Well, you know, what? <laughs> get into Mike Pence's mind? Yeah. That's quite, it's quite an endeavor to ask. Yeah, I know. But like how, um, let's just do a political calculation here. Were he to testify and, 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 you know, if he knows things that would turn the tide on any kind of potential prosecution of Donald Trump for criminal attempt to defraud the United States, uh, if he had that, in a, in a way, he's got a political calculation there. It would potentially take Trump out of the 2024 run, but at the same time, he would become possibly the enemy of his party, right? So he's sort of stuck betwixt and between here. And yet there could be something that motivates him to do it, right? We don't know what that is. That's right. I mean, Pence is is someone I have covered and known going back to 2009 when he was in the House of Representatives. He is an Indiana Republican who venerates Ronald Reagan. He prides himself on being a former talk radio host. He calls himself Rush Limbaugh on decaf. He always loves that characterization of himself and his personality and his politics. And he is someone who certainly still harbors presidential ambitions. Uh, But when you talk to people close to him, you also realize that he views the current committee with a bit of skepticism because of its lack of Republicans, just Cheney and Kinzinger. And at the same time, he believes as a former vice president, there's a privilege question and that he doesn't need to volunteer about conversations with the president. But you're right. It's a it's a interesting moral and political question. What's the line between privilege and responsibility to disclose? And so, like so much with Trump, when you talk to people who are around Trump in these days, they say 
it reminded them of the Michael Cohen case in the sense that Trump often wasn't being explicit in what he was saying. He was not putting anything in email or text messages. He was having long-winded, rambling phone calls, hoping something would happen to keep him in power, kind of nudging it forward, but never really explicitly making orders or demands from what they could tell. Now, that doesn't mean that didn't happen, but the way Trump operates is so different than a usual political leader. Yeah. Well, that goes back to the state of mind question. You know, people wonder if you can actually get him saying anything or uh, having made any definitive moves in the direction of or, or getting, you know, moments where he actually does admit, I know I lost <laughs> right. and yet I'm going to do X, right? You know, if he's somebody who's, as we know, kind of like uh, smoking his own supply at every, you know, every day of the week, then maybe he just did believe it no matter what facts came across. And that's the nature of Trumpism anyway, right? And so then you talk about trying to find connect legal dots around a mind like that it becomes frustrating, right? I keep thinking about this with this committee, and that, but this is why back to the seven-hour gap, right? What's in there? What was he saying on all these other phones, these assistance phones and, and uh, potentially burner phones, right? Burner phones. Anybody who watched The Wire will remember burner phones, right? Just Well, what's interesting is that when I went to former President Trump's office, as I finished this story with Woodward, as all of us do as reporters, we kind of seek comment, see if they want to weigh in on any of this. And the one statement Trump gave us in his name for this story, in his name, is, uh, I don't know about burner phones. I've never heard the term. I don't, I don't even think I've ever heard what they are ever in my life. That was what he said on the record. Right. And then after the story publishes, I get a call from John Bolton, the former Trump national security advisor, and he goes, uh, Costa, this uh, story is interesting. I saw the Trump statement. I said, yeah, what about it? He goes, well, when I was in the White House, Trump and I discussed burner phones numerous times in the context of intelligence and other matters. So that's not credible. And I said, you, so you, I said, on the record, you, you discuss burner phones. He said, well, we didn't discuss him using burner phones, but he certainly is aware of the concept and what they mean and how it's about avoiding scrutiny. Well, what did that tell you? Well, it's, it certainly raises questions about the credibility of former President Trump's statement to CBS News and the Washington Post about lack of knowledge on burner phones. But what's clear is that this was a White House, and this comes back to the seven-hour, 37-minute gap. Real quick, there's a switchboard log of calls from the residents. We have those from the morning and from the evening that Trump made through landlines that were routed through the White House switchboard. We have those documents. We also have what's called the Presidential Daily Diary from January 6th, which is a compilation of notes about Trump's movements and calls. But what we don't have are the notes from the time he was in the Oval Office or the call log from the time he was in the Oval Office because the committee doesn't have those. And right. the question is, what, the Presidential Records Act maintains that someone has to be taking notes of the president's calls in good faith and providing them to someone called the diarist of the White House, who then compiles a full log of the day for the National Archives. The looming question here is, well, did anyone even take notes when Trump was in the Oval Office? If they did, where are they? And if they didn't, why didn't they take notes? Was it because Trump was using non-governmental phones? Was there another reason? And that's why we put in our story, they're looking into a, one lawmaker told us from the committee privately that they're looking into whether there was some kind of cover up here. Why are they missing? Right. And this goes back to, did he take them to Mar-a-Lago? Did he flush them down the toilet? 
or they weren't taken, right? But what we do know is there's this cutoff, a cutoff from there's morning in the morning, there are some records, and then then there stop being records. That's right. And so he seems to have gone rogue. Well, he, he clearly was using the the Guardian had a good follow story about how he he was using a White House number to call Senator Mike Lee of Utah during that period. So somewhere somehow there had to have been a formal track of the Oval Office phone, the landline, and the dining room phone off the Oval Office, but they're just not provided to the National Archives and they're not provided thus to the committee. But those are automatic. Those are calls made on a landline phone. So where are those logs? And the committee is trying to kind of backtrack all this by using other people's call records to see if they were calling White House numbers that might have been Trump or Trump's personal phones that might have been Trump or Dan Scavino, the Trump aide, who Trump might have been using his phone. There's a guess about that inside the committee. Who was calling? Who was he calling to consult about the National Guard? Who was he calling on Capitol Hill to try to really hold steady as the riot was taking place? Was he communicating with anyone who had knowledge of the violence? I mean, all of this is kind of this black box still at this point. Right. And may connect some of these threads. I mean, meanwhile, you know, there's the Willard Hotel scene on January. Well, I was outside. I mean, we broke the news about the Willard Hotel in our book. And Joe, it still gives me a, kind of a chill. I mean, I, I, I was outside. I, I'll remember it for the rest of my life that I'm walking outside the Willard Hotel at 10, 11 o'clock at night on January 5th, having no idea, like anyone else, that there was going to be an insurrection the next day. But I knew there was something afoot. Something was in the air. And the city was empty because of what was going on with the pandemic. And it was freezing cold, January 5th. And all I remember, and I have it in my notes from the book, all I keep seeing are proud boys and oath keepers, elated. Tomorrow is a huge day. We're going to have fun. All wearing red hats. They're circling the willer. They're partying. They're drinking. They're smoking. They're causing a ruckus. Some of them are actually fighting with police officers. And there's almost like no one else in the city. And they're playing music very loudly. And then we later learn that Trump had his door open in the Oval Office to hear the din, to hear the music from the streets, yeah. from the mob. Wow. Oh, wow. And meanwhile, in that hotel... We have Bannon, Giuliani, they all converge here eventually. And Roger Stone was in a different part of the hotel. Unbelievable. Who, and, you know, and I don't know how firmed up this is, but he's got connections with some of these outside groups and obviously is advising Trump. Well, we know that a lot of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers think Roger Stone is their hero. That's for sure. Well, this is all incredibly tantalizing. It's still tragic to me. You know, when I, when I see what happened and how it unfolded, it still boggles the mind that it even happened. You know, we get immune to things from week to week. We see bits of news. We forget what it felt like just to be sitting there watching that on television and thinking, this is happening in America right now. You know, this know, is and, what and, it's and, come to. And the thing is, the thing that just keeps standing out to me even more than a year later is it was the violence, but it was also the legal and political coordination going on behind the scenes to stop a certification across so many different fronts that was playing out. And like so many people, I remember back in 2015 and 2016, everyone would say to me, why are you covering Trump? Why are you doing this? I said, take it seriously. I don't know if he's going to win or not, but these are people with real power, real political capital. And there's almost this, even after four years of Trump in the final weeks, there was this kind of assumption that well, it couldn't be that bad. It couldn't. He has to just be kind of doing an ego trip. Suppose it's not that. Suppose they actually mean what they say. They want to stay in power. 
I remember uh, talking to my dad about this. He's, he, you know, he's a Republican, but he had lost the thread of the Trump stuff. But, you know, I kept saying, I, can you believe this? Can you believe how he won't let it go? He's just like, well, he'll, he's going to have to come around. He's just, he hasn't accepted it, right? That was the whole argument at the time. He hasn't accepted it psychologically, right? Well, not only did he not accept it, he was actively, strategically looking for ways to make it go away, to kill the election, right? To make the results of the election not be what they were. From the call to the Georgia Secretary of State to the preamble to the election and saying it was going to be illegitimate anyway, right? The whole stage was set. And it's still, I come back to this again and again. It's like the law is one thing, and then the reality is, is, was right in front of our eyes. It's not like you need, maybe the law needs a smoking gun, <laughs> right? They need to prove the state of mind to get a, to a prosecution. But the rest of us saw it with our own eyes what happened from dating back before the election all the way through January 6th. And it's still to this day, I think, shocking to a lot of us that we see uh, the limits of the law to prosecute something that's obvious. And, and also the careful, you know, the politics around prosecuting a former president. I mean, I, you know, Merrick Garland came in because he, uh, you know, one of his stated goals was to depoliticize the Department of Justice. You know, Bill Barr was a very political chief justice. So, I mean, I, I, Merrick Garland has stated that he's taking it seriously, right? But at the end of the day, you and I know that Washington is a political town. It doesn't matter what part of the government you're in. And I think at some point, uh, there's going to come a moment where the facts are going to be laid on the table. We, there's probably going to be a report in the fall from this committee. There's going to be hearings in a couple of months. It's going to be out all on the plate. And Garland's going to have to make a decision. The only thing I would offer, not to defer with that, but it's just, here's just another view is, yes, there's frustration with Garland. But think about this. The DOJ, for the first time since 1983, has indicted someone for not complying with the congressional subpoena with the ban and indictment and Bannon's trial is scheduled to begin in July. Hadn't happened since 1983. Very serious. Okay. That shows enforcement at the DOJ level that you really never see going entire decades without seeing DOJ do that. Number two, DOJ is pursuing numerous cases of sedition Think about that. This is not a normal kind of trespassing. They're pursuing sedition charges against numerous people who participated. And then there's a recent report in the New York Times and the Washington Post about how that they're now broadening the criminal probe in a real way into the rally that was in many ways connected with people inside the Trump White House. So we just don't have a full window into DOJ. And so I don't like to read too much into so-called inaction by Merrick Garland especially after you see certain things that do signal seriousness. Maybe it is, as some committee members fear, not enough, but maybe we just don't know the full story because they work like sharks. They're underwater in a way congressional committees are not. Well, thanks so much, Bob, for coming on and talking about this. I I can't let you go before I ask this. What's your opinion about uh, Mick Mulvaney being a, you know, now former Trump White House uh, official, Coming to work at CBS. People are wondering about that today. I'm focused on my reporting. <laughs> well, I just wanted on the record uh, that he was quoted as saying, I have every ex- expectation that Mr. Trump will be, act, and speak like a great president should win or lose. 
Uh, he, well, he, he wrote in the Wall Street op. Well, that statement uh, did not prove to be accurate the way things played out, to say the least, based on my own reporting. But as a reporter, I, I just uh, I don't like to get distracted. This story is serious enough, occupies my time. That's what I'm looking at. Yeah. Well, uh, on a personal note, Bob, you and I met on a cruise ship. It's true. About a decade ago. It was uh, after Mitt Romney had lost to President Obama in the 2012 election, and it was a very different time. And uh, I met your wonderful family, and uh, you were just at the uh, outset of what's turned out to be an unbelievable career. You're kicking ass. So congratulations. Well, I appreciate that, Joe. I think back to that because when I was a reporter at National Review, you know, you think the January 6th story isn't just something that's isolated. I started covering the Republican Party and the conservative movement in my early 20s. We interacted back then in 2013. And what's so interesting is that you could see the convulsions inside of the GOP at that time that led to what's happening now. That's right. You see Donald Trump was a birther in 2011, 2012, and he was rising inside of the Republican base. And tracking these stories for years is really necessary to understand how these things come. And people go, how does January 6th happen? Well, if you were covering the Republican base for 10 years, you, you wouldn't be that surprised. That's right. Well, the talk on that cruise ship, which was a National Review cruise at the time, was the, why did we lose? Well, the party's too white, they said. They said uh, we didn't reach out enough to uh, you know, blacks and Latinos and that we were demographically headed for the dustbin of history, right? Mm-hmm. Because as you know, uh, minority uh, groups grew, this was going to necessarily hurt the party. And in and instead, what happened was Trump came along and found a whole new tranche of, you know, uh, white voters and some of the unhappy working class. And he basically denied that whole theory. He doubled down on what they thought was the weakness <laughs> at that time. Right. And that has been the story ever since. And it's a story that's still unfolding. It's yeah. uh we don't know where exactly this goes, and we just learn more every day. Well, thanks, Bob, for coming on. We'll have you back here again on Inside the Hive, and we do appreciate all your uh, great reporting and smart analysis. Joe, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And that's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Robert Costa of CBS News. I'd like to thank my co-host, Emily Jane Fox, and congratulations on her wedding this weekend. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs, and the good people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast happen. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. And hit subscribe and come back and visit us again next week. Mm